Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by senior editor Tess Thackera. Hey, Isaac. Hello, Tess. And executive editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. Okay, so last week, Tess published an article on the increasing presence of shamanism and mysticism in the work of contemporary artists. This uptick comes amidst a re-examination of the kind of collectivity associated with counterculture movements of the 60s and 70s, things like psychedelics, which are today being kind of heralded by some for having real therapeutic uh, value. Tess, how did you first encounter this in the art world? So I think as many of our listeners will know, at the Venice Biennale this year, there is a whole section of the main exhibition called the Pavilion of Shamans. uh, And it's dominated by this giant tent-like structure created by the Brazilian artist Ernesto Nito. Um, And it's meant to evoke the sacred spaces in which Amazonian indigenous peoples practice ayahuasca ceremonies. Really throughout the whole exhibition, there's sort of an interest or theme of collectivity and traditional practices. Um, also seen in the, the works by the artist Anna Halprin, uh, who is now in her 90s. She's a Bay Area postmodern choreographer who in the 1960s and 70s um, organized these ritualistic dance circles on Mount Tamil Pais, which is outside of San Francisco. And they were intended to literally exercise the mountain after several women were attacked on it. And so, you know, even beyond the Biennale, uh, the Sao Paulo Biennial and a number of other exhibitions have been exploring similar ideas. Ben Davis and other writers have sort of pointed to a neo-shamanistic trend in the art world. So I wanted to just go deeper with that and kind of explore the history of the artist as shaman and the history of shamanism in art. I mean, how would you define shamanism? What what kind of qualities in a work of art make it fall into this category? Yeah, so I mean, I'll start with the definition that the writer Daniel Pinchbeck gives in his book about contemporary shamanism. Um, The book is called Breaking Open the Head, and it uh, it's sort of a tour through contemporary shamanism. He he travels around the world visiting shamans and participates in their ceremonies and explores how and why these practices became demonized and stigmatized in the West. Um, And he sort of defines it as a technology for exploring non-ordinary states of consciousness in order to accomplish specific purposes like healing, divination, and communication with the spirit realm. But I'm taking a slightly broader definition and thinking of it also as ritualistic practices, um, not simply the consumption of hallucinogenic drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think most people or or many people associate the 1960s uh, and this kind of spiritualism, at least in, in the United States, with hallucinogenics. How is what's happening now similar or different to that kind of practice? Or are you looking beyond it? I mean, I think, you know, a number of cultural figures from the 1960s and 70s are being revisited now, like Anna Halprin. But there are also younger contemporary artists like Jeremy Shaw, who's really interested in 
altered states and the experiences humans can have through either taking psychedelic drugs or participating in rituals. And there's someone like Saya Warfork, who is a younger contemporary artist, and she's really thinking about how ritual and identity kind of intersect with both the physical and digital spaces. And she's thinking about, for instance, Brazilian masquerade practices in order to imagine the objects and iconography that make up this whole science fictional universe that she creates um, around this kind of hybrid female species called the empathics who have the ability to absorb cultures and practices and iconography from around them they're sort of like this hyper transcultural species um, so she's someone that's doing something that feels very of our moment but is also incorporating her knowledge and research of traditional practices yeah one of the things that's kind of an interesting tendency among particularly the younger artists who are looking at these issues is this impetus to come up with names of some evolved human species you see this also in the work of jeremy shaw who i think was actually the first artist that i saw that was beginning to tease out this idea in quickeners which i believe came out in 2014 he imagines this uh, society 500 years in the future but that is cast through narration over archival imagery of serpent-worshipping Pentecostal churches, uh, I believe in Appalachia, and this kind of 500 years in the future version of society, everybody's hyper-rational, they all feed off of this collective knowledge source called the hive. Um, it's kind of what you might imagine some dystopian version of a collective consciousness might be. And these quickeners, as they're called, have devolved somehow into an interest in ritualistic practice into emotion and self-expression through art and dance. You know, he also had this piece at the Venice Biennale called Liminals. Yeah, it's a community projected several years into the future. I can't remember how many, but they've sort of experienced a failed um, attempt at the singularity. So what, what makes this like mysticism and not just good sci-fi? You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> I think that Jeremy Shaw's work is not mystical in and of itself. He simply takes an interest in mysticism and the human need for some spiritual life. You know, it's interesting that you mention this sci-fi aspect to a lot of this work, because I think that Jeremy in particular is trying to provide an allegory of where we may soon be, depending on who you believe, uh, something like the singularity, which plays into liminals quite heavily and is this idea of AI evolving at such a rate that it, it mimics or surpasses the intellectual capabilities of the human brain. There's a clear debate, uh, particularly among technologists, if that will lead to a kind of Terminator-esque universe where the robots take over or if uh, we will be able to create more of a, a merger of uh, human and, and machine consciousness. What a great dialectic that is. <laughs> Excited for the synthesis of those two. But in his films, whether Quickeners or, or Liminals, you see these individuals or these kind of sub-societies returning back to previous practices. And this kind of mirrors what you're seeing in society at large right now as people are looking back towards more ancient cultures and ways in which society was organized in a more collective fashion in the past and trying to merge that with our very kind of technologically bound and mediated presence in a way that can kind of help us find a way forward and, and evolve society. 
So Tess, where is all of this kind of coming from historically? So as Pinchbeck points out in the book, shamanism is basically a universal human phenomenon um, that has continued more or less in every culture except for the modern West. And as he has it, the modern world essentially put an end to ritualistic mystical practices and artists sort of stepped in to fill that void and people looked to artists to create transformative experiences for them. So then you get someone like Joseph Boyce, who's sort of the most famous neo-shaman in the West. And he is probably most famous for locking himself in a room with a coyote for several days in in America. And the coyote in some Native American cultures has a mystical sort of mythological place. Um, And Boyce thought that by locking himself in a room with this coyote and communing with it, he was sort of trying to exercise what he saw as the poisonous spirit of U.S. politics. This was during Vietnam. But you can also see someone like Marina Abramovich as sort of grounded in in this tradition of the artist as shaman, someone that has a special ability to access truth and knowledge and who can heal people in some way. It's a really interesting point, actually, because if you look at the, the artist as present, performance at MoMA, probably most people that went through that would not have seen that as some ritualistic or there's a shamanistic experience that they had had, despite it being some kind of form of eye-to-eye meditation uh, that they were engaging in. Is that a thing? Eye-to-eye meditation? Eye-to-eye meditation, yeah. (laughs) It's very powerful. It's a great way of inducing empathy. You sit and like, you have to look at each other's like right eye because it's easier to focus on one eye versus both. Crazy things happen. Tess, I'm kind of curious, though, about the directness with which these artists are, are working. So, like, are they shamans? Are they using this these shamanistic cultures? What's, what's really the relationship here? If we're talking about the contemporary artists I talk about in this article, all of them are extremely uncomfortable with the notion that they're playing the role of the shaman. None of them want to feel they have some sort of a ability to transform anyone. A lot of them also are not actually in any way creating transformative experiences themselves they're more exploring the human need to feel some sense of transcendence people who are claiming to be shamans are more often those trying to commodify this trend and the ones that are actually engaging with it genuinely will really kind of almost recoil from that distinction i think part of that has been a very careful distinction among particularly people in the West who are taking up these things and trying to re-examine them and look at them as ways for us to find a way f- forwards and, and think about reformulations of our society, but doing it without culturally appropriating the people in the Amazon or in other places who genuinely have fostered this culture and carried it through to modernity without interruption. We should also say that we've been talking primarily about Western artists, but there are also artists practicing outside of the West um, who are drawing from their own sort of shamanic heritages. Uh, Someone like Park Chan-kyung, who I spoke to, uh, he's a South Korean artist, and he created a film that draws on the South Korean gut, the shamanic gut, um, which is a ritualistic practice involving dancing and chanting and he spoke a lot about the loss of a sense of community that he sees as being tied with the gradual loss of South Korean traditions 
um, and he's interested in sort of bolstering those practices as a way to fend off the effects of what he sees as as a very Americanized, um, imported Western version of modernity in South Korea. So putting my my kind of skeptical hat on this, I think a lot of people would maybe see this as not not necessarily mumbo-jumbo, but very distant practices that have no direct bearing on like the stresses of their life or are super inaccessible to them for like whatever reason, financial or time. Even as this art, a lot of it is striving towards connectivity between people. How, how do you, would you respond to, to critics who would say that it's actually very isolated from those experiences of, of most? I would say this work is deeply accessible because it relates to a fundamental human desire to feel some sense of spiritual life, some sense of transcendence. I mean, watching Jeremy Shaw's videos of people taking DMT, you see them in these hyper vulnerable states of, you know, I've never taken DMT, so I don't know what they're experiencing, but it's also an experience that they cannot put words to and that's something he's interested in but you see them in a state of total rapture and you know I think most people can relate to the desire to feel that I mean I can feel a bit cynical about for instance what impact people dancing in a circle together can really have on my life (laughs) saying that she danced her cancer out of her she did yeah she did go into remission after embarking on a series of dances to to fend off her cancer you're looking at me very seriously <laughs> i mean That's i not feel official you know, artsy medical advice do you, i feel skeptical about that kind of thing to some extent i don't expect dancing to change anyone's life but at the same time i find it incredibly accessible and relatable that people want to dance and sing and and that does feel like something that's a release and that brings you some transcendence. You know, I can also see to the extent that shamanism is tied up to some extent with this idea of, of taking drugs, a shaman taking you through an ayahuasca ceremony or people in the sixties and seventies having, you know, visions, uh, due to, you know, taking LSD or, or other entheogens. We're also in an interesting time where, where these things are being t- tested medically, and I think there's a lot of growing interesting research that there are therapeutic effects there, and, and that's exerting a change in society. But even that aside, ritualistic practices as vanilla wellness as daily meditation practice have also been shown to have massively positive health benefits. The fact that it can touch a significant number of people, that it is reaching out to a much wider group than it ever has before and is being looked at with greater seriousness. And to whatever extent that can increase empathy at a time when we're extremely divided, as, as Tess makes the point in the piece, uh, that's, a, that's a profoundly good thing. To what extent is this a political movement? To what extent can you sort of see these works as political? And if you can, where on the spectrum do they fall? Because I'm kind of curious when we talk about connectivity, that's obviously quite socialist. But when we talk about things like taking drugs and having an individual experience, it's maybe n- not necessarily falling in the same place. So I'm just kind of curious how you'd place these things. First of all, I, I want to contest a little bit that this is a movement because I think, you know, I don't think any of these artists would see themselves as part of a movement. I think they share certain aspects, but I just don't think that 
would you add? No, absolutely. I I would agree with that. To what extent are they political? I would say, yeah. I mean, a lot of them are taking a political position. I, you know, Park Chang Hyung, the South Korean artist, there's a certain political position that he's taking by resisting the spread of Western modernity into South Korea by invoking his own kind of native heritage, his own shamanic history. I think that is taking a kind of political position indirectly. But I don't think these works, I mean, I think they all, a lot of them express a deep disillusionment with Western modernity. I think that that's a strong current through all of them. How does the work kind of operate in this relationship then? So is it something that's sort of reflecting and commenting on the rise of this stuff in society? Or is it actually a thing in and of itself to be participated in and like Tess you were sort of saying provide the experiences so you know we don't all have to do DMT Uh, we can just watch someone else doing it yeah I mean I think it's really important to remember that we're talking about multiple different very nuanced practices that you know they share certain characteristics but are by no means this isn't by no means a monolithic swathe of practices you know, they all have their own specific contexts. Um, And I've looked at artists both inside the West and outside. So both things, you know, I mean, Anna Halprin has a whole dance movement called Planetary Dance that she wants everyone to join. And it's all about participating in dance together and experiencing the power of collective creativity. But then someone like Jeremy Shaw, you know, is it's he's not creating the experiences, but you can kind of be a voyeur and a bystander and um, witness someone else having a moment of extreme sort of ecstasy or rapture. You know, I think Jeremy told Tess and she starts out the piece this way with this quote. Everyone always talks about how in times of crisis, people start looking for God and during times of crisis or of great change, uh, like we're in. Currently, I think that that is quite true on some level, whatever God means to you. I think it can mean many things to many different people. But what's been exciting about this movement, to your point, Isaac, is that it has developed in art almost simultaneously with this wider cultural sphere. They aren't reflecting on each other, people who are very into transhumanism and you know singularity theory and shamanic practices out in the kind of wider cultural sphere aren't necessarily conversing with the artists that that we're talking about in this piece, but it really is showing how, you know, art and society can mirror each other at, a, at particular points in time. So the countercultural movements of the 1960s and 70s sort of faded uh, in the 80s and 90s, at least partially thanks to the, the war on drugs. Do you see a similar thing happening to the contemporary mysticism practices of today when it comes to artists or do you think that there's real staying power i mean i really hate sort of trying to look into the crystal ball and predict the future you can do it but (laughs) i mean i would say that this is not i don't see this as a movement and the the 1960s counterculture was such a defined okay i know it's not i know it's not a movement but Will the trend pieces stop? I mean, like, I mean, surely I think we can, that the we can work, say something's happening. Yeah, I think that the work, uh, the artists that I spoke to in this piece, I think are phenomenal artists. I think their work um, is very fascinating, and I think that it'll stick around, yeah. To Tess's point, there's many different things happening all the time, 
but thematically, this seems pretty crucial. I don't necessarily see a way for us to get out of some pretty serious issues in society without further embracing these ideals. And so to whatever extent, hopefully we don't, you know, vaporize ourselves and embrace a greater kind of collective entity, then art, as it always has, will reflect that. All right, as you might be able to hear, our weekly happy hour is happening right outside of our studio door. Um, so the white wine's already flowing out there. But this week, uh, Tess, where are you going to be drinking ayahuasca? No, just kidding. Where are you going to be drinking uh, white wine in the art world this week? Yeah, I'm actually going to be in Edinburgh. Um, I'm going to give my mom a little plug. She big has plug. Give her a big plug here. <laughs> give her a big plug. She has a pop-up gallery. It's called The Drawing Works. Um, she launched last year and she's showing in Edinburgh. I was part of the Edinburgh Art Festival. Um, so I'm going to go and check out her exhibition of systems-based and process-based minimalist drawing, which Ooh, is great. That's cool. Alex? Uh, in a very parent-themed white wine segment, I'm, I'm going to visit my dad in Detroit this weekend. <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure what's going on there and, and interested to see... You know, I feel like last year and the year before, there was a lot of talk of things happening in Detroit, and maybe I'm just out of the loop, but interested to see if that activity has quieted down or, or what else is happening in the art scene there now, to whatever extent I'm, I'm able to do that over the weekend. Uh, we'll, we'll make this a family-themed white wine. I'll actually be in England. My mom's British, and I'll be in Somerset, and I'll check out the Hauser & Worth show there, which is uh, on Rashid Johnson, I believe. So looking forward to that. It looks like a beautiful, beautiful location. Hopefully it doesn't rain the whole time. But a very rainy, rainy Tess. UK, I'm afraid. I've already checked. Are you sure? I think so. <laughs> well, or at least mildly rainy. Well, it wouldn't be England if it wasn't pouring with rain at some point or another. All right. Hopefully uh, your weekend isn't rainy. That's all we have time for this week. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. 